Welcome to the Jungian Anthology Podcast, Analytical Psychology Seminars from the C.G. Jung Institute of Chicago. Episode 13, The Father's Anima as a Clinical and Symbolic Problem, with John Beebe, M.D. First, I want to apologize for how long it has been since our last episode. I think it's been over two months. Uh, so sorry about that. The Founders Day Symposium in March. So... Since I normally try to stay within a month between episodes, uh, I will try to get back on track by not having a month between now and the next one uh, and do do that a couple of times so that, uh, well, to make it up to you all. So, John Beebe, MD, a physician specializing in psychotherapy, is a distinguished life fellow of the American Psychiatric Association and a past president of the C.G. Young Institute of San Francisco. He is the author of Integrity in Depth, editor of C.G. Young's Aspects of the Masculine, and co-author of The Presence of the Feminine in Film. He is the founding editor of the San Francisco Young Institute Library Journal, now titled Young Journal, Culture and Psyche, and was the first American co-editor of the London-based Journal of Analytical Psychology. An international lecturer, he is widely known for his work on psychological types, the psychology of moral process, and the Jungian understanding of film. Recently, he has been engaged in training the first generation of analytical psychologists in China. In this lecture, Dr. Bibi explores a neglected area in analytical psychology, the influence of the father's unconscious upon the later development of the son. Jung's analytical psychology offers insight into the way a father's feminine side influences the formation of the anima of the son. It was recorded on February 2, 1984, and includes the original introduction by Murray Stein. There was also uh, an audio issue with the original recording. The sensitivity was set too high, so occasionally there would be, uh, when his voice was too loud, it would create some loud crackling in the audio, and I've done what I can to reduce the impact. It was so loud that um, it actually, you know, it would be be distracting and and kind of painful. So I've uh, done some sort of modification to the audio file, but it also means the sound is a little bit more um, muffled, uh, which is inconvenient, but at least the pops are not so painful. But you'll hear Occasionally, there's a, a, a loud uh, sort of a white noise type sound, or it gets a little bit hard to hear. Um, so I've done what I can with that, and I'm sorry that it uh, that that's there. Um, I I tested what it would sound like if those parts of the audio were actually removed, but it makes it harder to follow. So I left them in um, and did the best I could. So sorry about that. Okay. Uh, so without further ado, here's the lecture. This is a great pleasure for me to introduce our speaker today. And I'm going to start by putting in a plug for something else, actually, which is, but it's related. And that's for a, a new journal called Chiron, a review of Jungian analysis. Um, this is a new journal that's been uh, started by 
a group of people if, uh, of whom I'm a member. Um, it's co-sponsored by two societies, the Interregional Society of Jungian Analysts and the Chicago Society. So we have an investment and a stake in making this become a successful journal. It's brand new, and it's the only Jungian journal that's focused specifically on clinical practice. Clinical not meaning anything having to do with hospitals or anything very technical, but it has to do more with the practice of analysis rather than theoretical discussions of um, Jungian thought and so on. Now, the way this is related to our speaker is that he is the author of one of the papers in this inaugural issue. And um, <coughs> it's a the issue is on, as a whole is on the subject of transference and countertransference processes in analysis. And his paper focuses on uh, the use of typology psychological, young psychological typology and understanding what happens in the transference, counter-transference relationship. And to my mind, it is the single most helpful paper that you can find anywhere in the Jungian literature on typology. If, you, if you've had trouble knowing how to apply typology to yourself or to anybody else, this paper helped me do it. And I've been trying for 10 years unsuccessfully and now I can do it, thanks to John. So I encourage all of you to read that paper especially carefully. <coughs> John Bloody uh, is a practicing Jungian analyst in San Francisco. His um, educational background is um, illustrious. He was an undergraduate at Harvard University. Uh, he went to medical school here in Chicago, at the University of Chicago, so he knows about our climate and our winters and so on. And then he went to uh, do a psychiatric work at Stanford in California, where he was the chief resident during his last year in residency there. <coughs> uh, since then, he has been involved in teaching uh, at the Jung Institute in uh, San Francisco and he's also <clears throat> on the faculty of the University of California's medical school system, and he teaches at Langley Porter Institute <clears throat> in San Francisco. Uh, John edited a textbook on psychiatry <clears throat> a number of years ago, and uh, <clears throat> has also written a very fine chapter in a book that I edited called Jungian Analysis, uh, co-authored co with uh, Donald Sandner on psychopathology, the Jungian understanding of psychopathology and its applications in analysis, Jungian uh, approach to analysis. Um, so he's, he's been writing recently, and I think what he really enjoys most writing about is uh, the movies. Uh, he's a movie aficionado, and he's written probably a half dozen of rather lengthy reviews of the movies in the journal that he edits in San Francisco called the San Francisco Library, the San Francisco Institute Library Journal. Um, very interesting movie reviews from a psychological union point of view. I think some of them are available at the, at the desk in the back if you're interested in that line of his. <coughs> so I say he's the editor of that journal. <coughs> so you can see what a prolific uh, fellow he is, and, and uh, it's really quite amazing what he's been able to do in the way of writing and editing and teaching in the last few years, in addition to having a full-time private practice. 
One personal thing about John, <coughs> he spent part of his childhood in China, I think a year or two, where his father was colonel in the army. And as a result of that, I think he's always retained something of the Chinese temperament. It's quite uncanny. He's probably the most intuitive, irrationally intuitive person I know. Um, he also almost knows the I Ching by heart. <coughs> in fact, he quoted a line which he said was his favorite line, if I can remember to get it right now. And that is that the great man encourages the people to approach by making himself available. And I think uh, John's success is due largely to following that maxim that he mainly has worked on himself and it is bearing fruit now as he is really coming into his own as a major force in our field. So I want you to give a very warm welcome to my friend John B. Maria, thank you for such a generous introduction. Uh, as all of you can see, I'm some kind of survivor of the patriarchal system. And I'm sure that the paper that I'm about to read to you, uh, which I gave last spring uh, in Jerusalem first, uh, as uh, at the Ninth uh, uh, International Congress for Analytical Psychology, which was a gathering of young analysts, was really the first time that I had sort of looked deeply into what fathers had done to me and what fathers do to their sons, and um, I realized to my surprise that this is a relatively um, unmanned field in Jungian psychology. It's of course been covered so much by Freudian psychology that perhaps we thought that we had to look at other issues. But I, I thought I should confess to you at the outset what my real um, axe to grind is and was in, in writing this paper and now reading it to you in Chicago. And that is that as a practicing analyst and as an analytic patient of many years uh, in Jungian analysis and as a reader of many uh, uh, Jungian works and as a writer, finally, of, of Jungian articles, I got sick and tired of the mother's animus being blamed for everything. Uh, it seemed like just one more example of uh, the lopsidedness of our culture, that it would have to be the unconscious of the, of the female parent that gets all the blame. And we certainly see this bias in, in films uh, that win Academy Awards, such as Ordinary People, where uh, uh, Mother's Animus is clearly to blame, and Mother is extruded, and, and Father and Son uh, unite in a loving embrace. Uh, at last, Fruit of Mother and, and, and Robert Redford uh, accept the Academy Award. I would hope that human psychology can do better than that, uh, yet so far it has rarely done so. So I thought, how can, how can um, we give some equal looks to the other side? And I decided that um, uh, the figure to go after was the father's anima. Now, of course, the relation between father and child is so largely unimaged in the Western culture. 
which is always the way when, when a political system is trying to maintain its power over people. You don't sort of uh, publish the secrets. So that it's quite acceptable to have images of mother and baby. But think how rarely you've seen books or paintings with uh, pictures of father and baby. And even more insidious and invisible is the influence of the father's unconscious upon offspring. Now, fortunately, because my paper is, is focused very much on experience that's close to me um, and is therefore about father and son, uh, there is a book which begins to talk, I think, very well about father and daughter, and that is Linda Leonard's fine book, um, The Worded Woman, Healing uh, the Father-Daughter Relationship. And I, I would like to say that my piece, which followed Linda's, I, I read Linda's in manuscript, and I spent time with Linda talking about her material and offered suggestions here and there, although it certainly didn't need many. Uh, my piece is a, is a kind of a companion piece, to, to Linda's book, and it begins to get at the fact that the father's unconscious, not just the father's conscious, not just the father's role model, but the father's unconscious, and particularly that feminine aspect, which is, after all, the largest portion of a man's unconscious, if we read Jung, has an effect. And to push and see how far we could use that in what uh, we psychiatrists call psychodynamics, the, the explanation of how psychological things uh, get going and uh, the springs of action, the, the dynamic impelling forces, how far we can understand things that up till now we've put under the rubric of the mother complex by looking instead at the relation of the, of the father to the son. So, of course, this is going to be a, a, a one-sided paper, and the, uh, the mother's effect is going to be deliberately left out. I, I want you to all keep that in mind as I read this, because this is a compensation. You've heard about the mother's effect enough, and I'm going to try to talk a little bit about the father's effect. Now, my title, as you know, is The Father's Anima as a Clinical and as a Symbolic Problem. And I want to begin with four clinical examples of the psychodynamic problem I have in mind. Like all clinical examples, they are part fiction, part fact. My first example is of a young man in his late 20s to whom it wouldn't have occurred to go into analysis. He was a surpassingly beautiful servant in the house of a bisexual captain of the Egyptian guard. This master had acquired this Jewish youth initially for a lewd purpose, but discovering that his comely servant was serious about his Judaism, managed to sublimate his attraction to the young man. He treated him as a son and gave him a favored position in his home. The captain's wife could not so easily contain her physical longing for the young man. She persistently entreated the servant for sex, which he always refused her, explaining that he could not betray a master 
who had treated him kindly. Exasperated, the woman finally played a trick. She seized the unsuspecting servant by his shirt as if to draw him near. When, as she expected, he tore himself forcibly from her grasp, she had a bit of his clothing in hand with which to prove to her husband that the young man had made a pass at her. A tribunal was called, and though no one really believed the captain's wife, the young man was sent to prison on the grounds that he had called his mistress's honor into question. For the biblical Joseph, who was the unfortunate servant, this imprisonment turned out to be decisive. His skill at interpreting other prisoners' dreams became known to the Pharaoh, who had a big dream none of his usual consultants could interpret. Joseph's refusal of Potiphar's wife led to his rise under a far more powerful master, the Pharaoh. My second example from the analysis of a contemporary man is an amplification of the Joseph story. This man, also in his late twenties, found himself making rapid advances in his chosen career. He felt supported in his advancement over his fellows at work by the seemingly endless encouragement of his fatherly Jungian analyst. This analyst managed to provide a wonderfully non-intrusive holding environment that contained the patient utterly in a sense that his every step toward self-advancement would meet with the unconditional positive regard of his analyst. Under the spell of this anima fathering, the patient had come to regard his entire life as one of continuous advancement. And then he had the following dream. I was in a classroom with other students, possibly a nursery school. I was absorbed in the positive maternal atmosphere of the teacher, humming at her desk. I felt at one with the other students, who were all working quietly at their different desks. I didn't actually see anyone in the room, nor did I need to, so contained was I within the pleasant classroom atmosphere. Suddenly. An angry male figure, the father, entered the room, harshly interrupting the comfortable atmosphere with angry words toward the motherly teacher. How could you let this happen? The father demanded. Look at him. I was suddenly acutely conscious of myself and my surroundings. Now I could see that all the other students were wearing red tunics and I, a coat of many colors. This dream registers the impact of the analyst's stance upon the patient. So the analyst's anima was in fact the motherly teacher, so skilled at creating a containing environment that she was not allowing the patient to become conscious. And the terrible father was the split-off, envious, and hostile side of the analyst's attitude toward his patient. 
This dream was the Analysand's first intimation that in and outside the analytic situation, his obvious capacities might arouse envy and competitive feelings from others, and another Anima response than unconditional positive regard from his analyst. Yet this experience of his analyst's unconscious hostility toward him helped to make him aware of the creativity of his own rather extroverted anima. This anima developed into a very useful political sense that enabled him to survive many difficult situations en route to the realization of his scholarly gifts. My third example is also drawn from the analytic situation. This analysand was a man in his middle thirties who found himself in the throes of an acute marital crisis. This man became gripped by a passion for someone younger and more physically alluring than his faithful and familiar spouse. Discussions with neither the spouse nor the analyst seemed to transform this all-consuming passion. In the midst of deciding what to do, the man dreamed. I'm in the kitchen. I turn on the water, which is badly hooked up to the plumbing in the bathroom in the next room. Water comes out of every pipe in the kitchen. It's good, clean water, almost like crystal clear spring water, but the plumbing is in awful shape. My father is there. I say, Dad, what do I do about this? He's absent-minded, absorbed in his thoughts. He doesn't acknowledge that I've said anything. Shortly after, the man terminated both his marriage and his analysis in order to pursue his passion. Despite the aggressive explosivity of his decision, the patient was able to find his way back into his marriage for another try and into a more focused relationship to his unconscious life than had previously been possible for him. He was ready to fix his own plumbing. My fourth and final example involves a similar decision to live out rather than refuse the call to Eros, and it provides amplification for the third case. This example is taken from the documented life history of the head of a religious state who prayed to God his father to test him in his faith. This wartime political leader's wish was not long in being granted. Shortly after his prayer, the head of state caught sight of the beautiful wife of one of his most loyal military officers. Unable to contain his passion, the leader summoned the wife and slept with her. She conceived that night, and when her pregnancy became known to him, the head of state decided that he would get rid of the husband by sending him to the front lines. The loyal officer was killed in action, and Bathsheba married King David of Israel. God was not slow in expressing his displeasure. For the way in which he took the wife of Uriah the Hittite, David was to suffer greatly. 
the child conceived of their tryst died in infancy, and continuous warfare was to plague David's 40-year reign. He was not allowed to build the temple, and for a six-month period suffered from leprosy, and he had to endure a long, troublesome rebellion at the hands of his favorite son, Absalom. But despite all this, David never regretted his choice of Bathsheba, and apparently neither did God once the shabby beginning of their intimacy had been punished. David atoned for the enormity of his sin and continued his life with her. Bathsheba became pregnant again, and this time her son was Solomon, a personification of the wisdom David had gleaned from his experience. David was visited at his bedside by Bathsheba a final time when he was dying, and he followed her good advice to make Solomon the next king of Israel. Solomon turned out to be an excellent king. Solomon was allowed by God to build the temple. Now, these are my four examples. And it's obvious, I think, that in each the man has an anima experience which requires a choice. The classic example of a man meets a kind of erotic problem which, uh, which uh, confronts him with his fate, as in the classic literature on the anima which, which Jung has given us. Now, in the first two examples, um, uh, Joseph himself and, and then the man in analysis who had the dream that he was wearing the coat of many colors, the men decide to resist the seductions of the anima figure so as to realize the anima potentiality in themselves. Uh, Joseph doesn't sleep with Potiphar's wife, and uh, the analysis disentangles himself from the uh, uh, warm maternal nursery school anima of his analyst. Um, they resist the seductions of the anima figure. But the man in the second two examples, um, the man who had the dream about the water coming out in the kitchen and, and uh, David, um, these two men decide to go with the pull of the anima into a deepened consciousness of eros, even at the cost of betraying loyal partners and traditional values. What I want you most to see, however, is that in each case, the anima problem that is being presented to the man is not purely his own, but rather one presented to him by a father figure. These father figures are Potiphar, the captain of the guard in the Joseph story, in the first case, that all-accepting analyst in the second case, and that affect-isolating personal father who in the dream doesn't even acknowledge that his son has said anything when he asks him what to do in the third case, and finally God in the David story. It's very clear if you read the story of David and you read the Psalms that David is always talking to God, that God is, is David's true father, in a sense. Now, the anima figures are 
Potiphar's wife, that warmly maternal nursery school teacher, the outpouring of the pure water of life from the poor plumbing, and Bathsheba in all her glory, all of them represent anima problems these father figures have left to the sons to solve. And in each of my examples, the task of the son figure is to relate to his father's anima problem in such a way that its energy becomes his own. Making the father's anima problem into an inner experience of his own usually requires from the son a refusal to go the way that the father's anima would apparently desire. In other words, it requires a paradoxical response. Joseph realizes his own anima potential by not sleeping with Potiphar's wife. The first analysand stops allowing his analyst to carry the anima function for him. Remember, that function is the connection to the unconscious. He doesn't let the analyst do that for him and thus becomes conscious of his own capabilities. That first analyst was the kind of analyst who does all the dream interpreting for the patient, for example, that kind of thing. Um, the married second analysand chooses to live out the libidinal problem that his father would rather ignore. And David goes against God's will in making someone God has presented merely as temptation into a legitimate wife who will mother his future heir. Now, these four situations are examples of a transfer of energy that I regard as decisive for the individuation of a man. The way in which the anima becomes his own, free of his father's influence. And here I would say that you could read Linda Leonard's book uh, as the way a woman finds the feminine self free of the father's anima. That's one way to read what, what Linda has given us. Um, now, what about the anima? Uh, this is a term that is used again and again in Jungian psychology, and many articles have been written, including two articles in spring a few years back by James Hillman, in which he talks about all the different ways in which we use that term. And anyone who really wants to follow up should find out those articles and, and, and see what, a, what a, uh, a magical word anima has become for, for Jungian analysts. And I'm going to say what, what I think. Toward the end of that article, James Hillman says that above all, the anima serves the instinct for reflection. And in that sense can be said that which gives man, and many analysts are now saying also woman, soul. The classical model gave uh, man anima and woman animus, but many analysts are now feeling that women too have anima. But uh, I like to pick up on that idea of the anima as something tied up with, with reflection. 
rather as in the Lady of the Lake. Wherever you get an image of a reflective surface in a dream, you can know that possibly anima is involved. And I find it helpful to think of the anima as the emotional attitude a man takes toward anything he reflects upon. And perhaps his most consistent anima is the one toward the role he is playing in life. Very often, uh, anima is a, is a synonym for resentment. Uh, a man who's constantly feeling that but for something else, but for a boss who would see his worth, he would really get somewhere, that, and, and molds and reflects and muses and is embittered. That, that's the resentful emotional attitude. That's a very common anima. But there can also be a narcissistic anima, a satisfied anima, an ambivalent anima, and, and so forth. It's, a, it's an emotional attitude when a man sits musing over his life. And, and men spend a lot of time musing over their lives, and they confuse that musing with consciousness. Uh, reflection, that kind of unconscious anima reflection, is not consciousness. It's deeply unconscious, and that's part of what I'm exploring in this paper. Um, now, this anima, toward the role the man is playing in life, uh, this anima that accompanies his persona, is certainly the anima that affects his fate. Um, it's his working, spontaneous sense of his life. In fact, Jung calls the anima the archetype of life, and that's how I understand it. It's his working, spontaneous sense of his life. It's the way he approaches his life, and the way he reflects upon it. And when I speak of the father's anima, I'm referring to the father's working sense of his son's life. The emotional attitude that a father takes toward his son. And fathers spend a lot of time in musing and unconscious reflection about uh, their son. They'll, they'll, they'll sit and talk for long periods about about their son. Now, I'm not, of course, talking about conscious attitudes that fathers take towards sons or conscious behavior towards sons, but this deeply unconscious pattern, emotional style of reflection, which can really catch a father from behind. And as I say, he can confuse it with consciousness. But as, as we'll see, it's, it's in many ways deeply unconscious. It's the father's working sense of his son's life. It's the emotional attitude that the father takes toward his son. And this emotional attitude is communicated to the son as his father's felt sense of the younger man's worth. Now, it was Freud's great discovery early on in his, his writings, and maybe it's his greatest contribution to uh, psychology, that the father's emotional attitude toward his son is normally ambivalent. It's one of the few cases where one could almost say always. At best, a father's attitude toward the son is always tinged with ambivalence. That's what Freud taught us, and I think we should remember it. But there's usually splitting in any father's experience of that ambivalence. In other words, part of the one pole is split off, and so one father feels primarily loving and protecting, while another is painfully aware 
of an attitude of rejecting resentment toward his son. So one father thinks he loves his son totally, and the other father feels guilty most of the time because he doesn't love the son enough, because he knows that he resents him. So each father has split off a side of the normal ambivalence. And often, the surfacing of another pole to what seems to be the dominant attitude comes as a shock to both father and son. Yet, as I have tried to show in my examples, it is the unsuspected side of the father's anima that provides the greatest opportunities for the son's own anima development. The stories of Joseph and David define two extremes, two opposite patterns of a father's anima's effects on the later individuation of his son. In the Joseph story, or pattern, the father's anima is in her most approving aspect as idealizing love, directly projected onto the son. And we'll go into that story in just a minute. In the David story, or pattern, the father's anima is withheld from the son in an attitude of devaluing distancing and paranoid envy. And we'll see that when we go into the David story. Now, under conditions of love, uh, Joseph becomes ingratiating. And under conditions of abandonment, David becomes resourceful. You'll remember David grew up as a shepherd on uh, his father, father Jesse's estate and was very much cut off from his personal father, as we'll see. Yet in later development, um, the ingratiating Joseph has to learn to protect himself from the tricksterish, envious hostility that is concealed within his father's apparently endless love for him. And David uh, will be driven to forcibly seize hold of the affective response that has been withheld rather than simply endure his emotional isolation with compensatory efforts at poetic and heroic self-validation. Both men have to deal with parts of the anima their fathers have not revealed to them. And these split-off parts emerge synchronistically in the son's encounters with actual women. In other words, if some of the women here feel that somehow they're being used by men uh, to work out problems the men are having with their fathers. You're absolutely right. You are. You are. Jan has a statement about these ideas that we meet ourselves or parts of ourselves endlessly on the road of life. He said, um, we do, but this, um, this point of view is only useful to those who also accept the irreducible reality of other persons. So that if someone is carrying synchronistically something, that doesn't mean they're nothing but a projection. The reality of the person that carries the projection has to be considered too. And of course, that makes life quite a tangle. Now, Joseph is forced to withheld the forced to experience the withheld trickster pole of his father's anima through Potiphar's wife. Um, 
he must learn to withdraw from this kind of woman and survive her treachery if his development is to proceed. And David's need for the withheld loving pole of his father's anima drives him to a series of passionate encounters with women. Bathsheba was his hundredth wife until his own identification with the heroic trickster gives way. If we look more deeply into the stories of Joseph and of David as found not only in the Bible, but in the legends surrounding these figures collected by Lewis Ginsburg, and I'd like you all to just run out and add to your library this remarkable book called Legends of the Bible. If you've ever wondered who is Lilith and where do all these stories that you hear and where is all the material that I'm going to give you that you won't find in the, in the Bible itself, there's a tremendous oral tradition and it was collected in many volumes and then made into a one-volume uh, reader's, reader's uh, issue by Lewis Ginsburg and uh, published by uh, the Church Publication Society of America in either 57, 35, or 1975, depending on which calendar you're using. But it's a, it's a superb book, and it has uh, much of the amplificatory material that I'm going to draw upon. Well, if we look more deeply into these stories, um, the process of anima differentiation within each pattern becomes more clear. What you should be listening for as I retell these stories is how the father's anima is gradually transferred into the sun. Pure water of life. Let me uh, start again with Joseph. Joseph's father was Jacob, a grandson of Abraham, and though Jacob had four wives, Rachel was by far his favorite. But Rachel watched the other wives bear Jacob ten sons. At last, God let her bear Joseph. And uh, the name Joseph means uh, increase. And once when I consulted the I Ching with the question, what is the meaning of the Joseph story, I got the hexagram increase. Um, when a second son, Benjamin, was born to her, uh, Rachel died in childbirth. Ginsburg tells us that Joseph's beauty of person was equal to that of his mother Rachel, and Jacob had but to look at him to be consoled for the death of his beloved wife, reason enough for distinguishing him among his children. As a token of his great love for him, Jacob gave Joseph a coat of many colors, so light and delicate that it could be crushed and concealed in the closed palm of one hand. Thomas Mann, in his own retelling of the story, makes the coat of many colors into Rachel's wedding garments. We can see that the anima role in his father's life had been placed onto Joseph, and the young Joseph behaved accordingly. Uh, Ginsburg tells us that he painted his eyes, dressed his hair carefully, and walked with a mincing step. And young Joseph also felt called upon to carry his father's relation to the unconscious, 
He wore tales about his brother's home to Jacob and reported mediumistic dreams which had portent for the future of their tribe. In effect, he began to preempt the function of Jacob's anima in looking out for the family unconscious. In telling one such dream, Joseph said, Behold, I have dreamed a dream more, and behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars made obeisance to me. And he told it to his father and to his brethren, and his father rebuked him and said unto him, What is this dream that thou hast dreamed? Shall I and thy mother and thy brethren indeed come to bow down ourselves to thee and to the earth? And his brethren envied him. But his father observed the saying. I want you to notice the splitting in the father's response as reported here. On the one hand, Jacob is leading the brothers on in their envy of Joseph. On the other hand, he observes the saying, that is, profits from the mediumistic anima function that his son is performing for him. Joseph is trapped by Jacob's idealizing transference to him into a grandiose exhibitionism which arouses Jacob's envy, which Jacob then transfers onto the brothers so that his conscious idealization of Joseph can be maintained. Yet the envy they carry for Jacob, the shadow side of Jacob's idealization, is actually the force that serves to free Joseph from this dangerously inflating situation and sets him on the road of his own individuation. Jacob sets Joseph up by sending him out to inquire after his brothers. They strip off the coat of many colors and throw Joseph into a pit while they decide whether to kill him or sell him into slavery. In the father's tricksterish deviousness in sending Joseph to his collapse, we can see that Jacob really wanted to reclaim the anima with which he had invested his son. The coat of many colors is brought back to him stained with the blood of a slaughtered animal, and he is told that Joseph has been torn to pieces by a wild beast. Though in fact, Joseph has been sold into slavery. Jacob's trick enables him, with the aid of his other son's treachery, to win back his authority over the unconscious destiny of the tribe. In Egypt, the two sides of the father's anima are expressed by a single figure, Potiphar's wife, whose behavior fits the pattern of seduce, then destroy. That's the anima sequence, seduce, then destroy. After initial idealization, she too divests Joseph of some of the fine garment Potiphar had given him, and she deprives Joseph of influence and authority by having him sent to prison. Prison is a chance for Joseph to reflect, as was the pit, and through these depressing experiences, one feels him beginning to grasp that there is a side of any father figure which is bound to resent the anima investment he has made in a son. Indeed, unless a young man realizes this, he is in for some rude shocks, particularly in the area of his career. 
When a once encouraging father figure snatches back his anima, it can feel like a major betrayal. And uh, men here who have been in academic life know exactly what I'm talking about. But with Joseph, each divestiture of the father's anima leads not to irreparable narcissistic injury, but rather to the further development of what um, several analysts have called interiority, which I think is a nice term. When finally Joseph emerges from prison to take his destined role beside the Pharaoh as the steward who will see Egypt and the world through the famine, he is in a very different, he is a very different person in a very different place from the youth who naively paraded his dreams before his father and his brothers. Having demonstrated that Pharaoh's disturbing dream predicts a famine, Joseph advises Pharaoh to look out a man discreet and wise and set him over the land of Egypt to oversee the storing up of food against the lean years. Pharaoh said unto his servants, uh, Can we find such a one as this is, uh, a man in whom the Spirit of God is? Joseph doesn't say anything. Someone um, pointed out that Genesis is a very funny book. You really have to read it with a sense of humor. It's, it's, uh, it's a very funny book. And then after a long silence, I assume, uh, he looks to Joseph and says, uh, For as much as God hath shewed thee all this, there is none so discreet and wise as thou art. And he then makes Joseph second in command, giving him his ring, a gold chain, and vestures of fine linen, and made him to ride in the second chariot which he had. As Pharaoh puts it to Joseph, only in the throne will I be greater than thou. This investiture is a very different process than the one which prevailed in Jacob's house. Here the Pharaoh manages his ambivalence about sharing power by retaining his own anima connection to his royal self as supreme authority. Joseph, for his part, never tried to preempt that authority, even when called to the intimate task of interpreting the Pharaoh's dreams. It is at this point that Joseph is allowed to marry. The Bible tells us that his bride is a daughter of Potipharah, who is described as a priest. This name is virtually the same as Potiphar, but the change in vocation from military captain to religious priest suggests that the attitude of the father figure has changed toward Joseph from one of defense to one of religious sacrifice in response to Joseph's maturing consciousness. The father figure at this stage is no longer a tribal patriarch using the pattern of seduce and destroy in order to maintain his power. He is an initiatory father who yields the anima to the son as his sacred duty to help the son become a father figure in his own right. The rest of Joseph's story reveals that he can now deal with the tricksterish side of his original father's anima. When his brothers come to Egypt during the famine uh, to buy grain, 
he plays mournful tricks upon them, demonstrating not only that he can handle them, but also that he is willing to share the guilt of betrayal with them. They come to this man that they don't recognize because he's now um, uh, looks totally different uh, from from the boy they had known, and um, um, they buy grain. And as they're leaving uh, Egypt, he has messengers secretly steal um, uh, or, or ret- excuse me return the payment to them and put it back into their sacks so that. They look, finding the money in the sacks, they're afraid that they're going to be arrested as thieves. And uh, they're in great haste to give the money back. And it's, a, it's an absolutely marvelous trick by which um, Joseph gets them to kind of respect his authority and freely grant it because they want to get out of Egypt and, and back to Jacob who's, who's waiting for them. Uh, so he plays certain tricks upon them, uh, demonstrating not only that he can handle them, but also that he's willing to share the guilt of betrayal with them. And he really sets them free from having to carry the envious side of Jacob's anima. He makes them glad to yield to him his rightfully superior position over them. Once Joseph has learned to deal with both the idealizing and the tricksterish pole of his father's anima, Jacob is satisfied and ready to die. Joseph has his own anima, his own interior relation to ideals and to tricks, and his father complex is at an end. He has gracefully solved the problem of achieving anima fertility without acquiring it at his father's expense. That increases that anima fertility. And the story of Joseph is a very graceful story, almost like a fairy tale. It has the, it has the graceful uh, mood of a fairy tale. And one leaves it with a pleased, with a pleased quality, uh, just as we are very pleased when we meet men who are like Joseph, who are in the Joseph pattern. They have a pleasing graciousness to them. Now, when we turn to the David story, uh, we find ourselves in a very different pattern, where anima fertility represented now by the continuation of the kingship. And we're getting out of the fairy tale and into real historical times, too, I would add. Uh, This anima fertility can now only be achieved at the father's expense. In this pattern, the son does not suffer from the trickster, but is the trickster. And ruthlessness, not grace, is what the son must display to survive. David is the type of son who starts his journey through life feeling that his father is somehow ashamed of him. The trickster side of the father's anima has been projected onto him, and so he is always somewhat doubtful in his father's eyes, however remarkable his attributes and achievements. Of David's actual father, Jesse, Ginsburg tells us, in spite of his piety, Jesse was not always proof against temptation. One of his slaves caught his fancy, and he would have entered into illicit relations with her had his wife, Nazbat, not frustrated the plan. She disguised herself as the slave, and Jesse, deceived by the ruse, met his own wife. 
the child born by Nazbat was given out as the son of the freed slave so that the father might not discover the deception practiced upon him. The child was David. In our words, the father's anima has projected her trickster pole onto David. David grew up a living reminder of Jesse's regrettable lapse of piety, tragically cut off from the idealizing side of Jesse's anima. Therefore, his early life is a continuous effort to prove his worth to himself and to father figures. And the tragedies of his mature years can be understood as his ultimate attempts to connect with the love and forgiveness that his father had withheld. It is clear that the discovery of David's true stature comes as a shock to Jesse. This discovery is made by Samuel the anointer, who is told by God, displeased with the rule of Saul, Israel's first king, that a new king is needed and that this king will be the son of Jesse. And um, God was was, uh, displeased with Saul because Saul wasn't ruthless enough. God uh, told uh, Saul to slaughter all of the Amalekites, the first final solution on record. uh, And... um, Saul did what good uh, tribal chieftains in that day typically did. Um, He spared the best men and the best animals to set up a colonial uh, state. And God uh, didn't like that. And um, he took the spirit of God away from uh, Saul and instead sent an evil, melancholic spirit to him and instructed Samuel to go find another king. So while Saul is still the nominal ruler, um, the... the, uh, the, the prophet uh, uh, anointer uh, Samuel is going around the country looking for someone who will be the real next king of Israel. And it's supposed to be a son of Jesse. So Jesse presents seven sons to Samuel, but the oil will not flow from Samuel's horn onto any of their heads. It's rather sort of like a male version of the Cinderella story. And uh, finally, uh, Jesse brings forth David from the field. The oil flows. It's very funny. He said, haven't you any more sons? And, and uh, almost as an afterthought, Jesse says, well, well there is David, that, that shepherd boy who's half mine. Um, and they bring David out from the fields, and the oil flows. And uh, David's mother, Nazbat, reveals the deception she had practiced. Only then does Jesse recognize David as his legitimate son. Almost immediately after, David is summoned to Saul's court to comfort Saul with the musical ability David learned in his lonely years as a shepherd on his father's estate. And once again, David is in a compromised position. He's a trickster. He knows as he plays to soothe the paranoid Saul that he will one day be the usurper of Saul's throne. Nevertheless, though his efforts to win over Saul's moody anima are only temporarily successful, David is able during these years to win a bit of the love from the father that he needs. He gets even more from Saul's son, Jonathan. For, just as Joseph's brothers carried the envious side of Jacob's idealizing transference to Joseph, so Jonathan carries the homoerotic loving side of Saul's paranoid transference to David. Upon Jonathan's death, David notes, very pleasant 
hast thou been unto me. Thy love to me was wonderful, passing the love of women. But where Joseph took favoritism for granted, David is much more cautious upon finding appreciation at Saul's court. He asks, for instance, to be Saul's honor bearer, but he avoids, he just puts it on for a minute, and he avoids wearing Saul's armor when he goes to slay Goliath. And this is the counter position to Joseph, uh, Joseph's naive acceptance of the coat of many colors and parading about in the coat. It's a complete difference. He just puts on the armor for a minute. Even so, the slaying of Goliath, David's attempt to win Saul's approval with a grand heroic gesture, backfires. Uh, the people say uh, Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his tens of thousands, and David becomes the folk hero, and Saul's ambivalence toward David is resolved in favor of envy. And David is eventually driven from Saul's court to live as a renegade who hides in caves and gradually gathers supporters for his own cause. Pathetically, he continues to try to prove his loyalty to Saul whenever the two come in contact. And there's one episode when David cuts off just a snippet of Saul's royal garment with his knife when Saul walks into a cave where David is hiding in darkness. And this motif is again the reverse uh, of the trick uh, Potiphar's wife played in taking a piece of Joseph's shirt. For David's trick is his way of showing his loyalty to a, the father figure and his right to his love. In other words, if I can cut off a piece of your, your cloak, you can see that I'm not going to kill you because I could have just as soon stabbed you. Uh, he's trying to demonstrate that he means no bodily harm to Saul, but once again, Saul is only temporarily won over and soon reverts to his murderous pursuit of his hated rival. During this period, and David is sort of the Fidel Castro of the day. He's, he's living in the guerrilla life uh, with, with an ever-increasing band of supporters, and uh, um, they, they have problems uh, just um, uh, feeding themselves at times. And during this period, David begs bread for his men from a wealthy landowner. Suspicious of this band of renegades, the landowner refuses, but his wife Abigail, meeting David on the road, uh, is favorably impressed and decides that she wants to help him. When she tells her husband um, back home her positive opinion of David and her desire to feed him and his men, her husband has a heart attack and dies. <laughs> Abigail becomes one of David's wives. Unlike Joseph, David must claim the anima literally over the dead bodies of father figures. He cannot officially become king of Israel until Saul dies in battle along with Jonathan. It is in the light of this pattern that we can better understand why the Analysand who dreamed that his kitchen was overflowing with poorly contained libido was forced to seek the solution to his problem outside of his marriage and his analysis. The failure of his analysis to contain him, which is in contrast to the Joseph-like analysis, who was too contained by his analysis, 
was directly related in that dream of, of the patient to the failure of his original father to lend support or even acknowledgement to his libidinal dilemmas. He says about the water pouring out, Dad, what do I do about this? And the father lost in thought doesn't acknowledge that he's even said anything. So no acknowledgement to the libidinal dilemma. Where the original father's anima has been this withholding, it is not unusual for the analysand in crisis to find his male analyst's efforts to contain him within the analytic situation relatively unhelpful. Nor may the spouse's empathy be enough to contain him in his marriage when as sooner or later they must, the possibilities of life that the father has withheld emerge. Often the father's faulty container must be broken before jailing containment can occur. I think this is the real reason David broke God's commandment in sending Uriah to his death. He had to have the connection to Bathsheba on his own terms. And surely this is the most troublesome story in the entire Bible. Uh, Jung returns to it several times in his writings. He writes about Uriah. And uh, I think Rembrandt's greatest painting is the painting of Bathsheba uh, at her bath with the letter from David and uh, knowing what is ahead all on her face. Very, very tragic moment. But I feel that David had to have the connection to Bathsheba on his own terms. For with Bathsheba finally his own, love and not treachery gains the upper hand in David's character. When Absalom, his son, dies during his later political rebellion, David weeps so loudly and so long that he compromises his power over those who have fought so long and hard against Absalom on his behalf. They finally say, look, who side were you on all along? Ours or Absalom's? And they get very angry at him, and he darn near loses his, his kingship. And this, too, is the counterpole to something that happens in the Joseph story when the brothers uh, return uh, uh, to Egypt. Um, he's so overwhelmed to see them that he starts to cry, but he goes into another room and weeps apart. It's as if David learns to weep openly and Joseph learns to hold, hold his tears to himself. Um, Psalm 51 is said to have been written by David as a prayer for absolution for his guilt over Uriah. In this psalm, one senses that David has begun to reflect upon the pattern of his life. He refers specifically to the tricksterish circumstances of his birth as the genesis of his own long-standing tricksterism. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. This self-reflection seems to be based in a genuine interest in the meaning of his own life. His next words to God are, Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, 
and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. We can therefore understand the sacrifice, when I say understand, I don't mean forgive exactly. That's, that's God's in the story, not, not, not ours. In the, in the story, Nathan the prophet comes and really makes David see the, uh, the, the enormity of, of what he'd done. He said, suppose a wealthy landowner had many, many sheep, and um, he saw a man who had one little ewe lamb, and he went and he took that ewe lamb to add to his sheepfold. What would you say about such a man? Well, he's a rascal. He should be strung up and punished, said David. And Nathan says, you are that man. And only then does uh, David realize what, what he really did in taking Bathsheba from Uriah. And Uriah was his most loyal soldier. He was Uriah the Hittite, the most loyal of his soldiers. But psychologically, I think we can understand or comprehend the sacrifice of the loyal Uriah as a symbolic solution to the problem presented to David by his father's anima. The sacrifice of Uriah represents the end of David's bondage to his original pattern. This pattern had locked him into the role of an eternal, loyal soldier of God forever seeking new hero tests with which to prove himself worthy of God's admiration. His unforgivable sin freed David from such heroic overcompensation and allowed him to become initiated into the experience of God's mercy. In response to David's new attitude of humble supplication, God makes a reciprocal sacrifice of his wrath and allows David to keep Bathsheba. And this is a powerful change in Jehovah. Jehovah is up till then just the angry storm god insisting on authority. And this is really the moment at which we first experience the forgiveness of God. And that's why David is so often seen as the forerunner of Christ, because it, David really brought out the, the forgiving aspect of God, because you get up till then a, a sort of a contract-making kind of God, and you get a very different God after this. And the change in God, which accompanies the change in David, parallels the way Potiphar the captain uh, gave way to Potiphar the priest within Joseph's story. At this point in both stories, heroic devotion to a father who makes use of the anima for his own unfathomable purposes ends, and a truly religious cooperation between son and father begins. The son experiences the anima for the first time as a more truly caring emotional attitude toward himself. At this stage, the two patterns are really one. The point of both being to effect the father's transfer of the anima to a son conscious enough to make wise use of her protection. Thank you. I guess we'll take a little break and come back and have, have some questions.
Well, I was asked at the break two questions I'd like to start with and then open it up uh, to other questions. Um, the first is, what did I mean by that um, rather snotty reference to those of you in academic life will know exactly what I mean? I, I, uh, I think I should say where I'm, where I'm coming from. Um, Actually, if you remember the, um, the play Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, you have the um, uh, younger faculty member and the older faculty member, and uh, we certainly have an anima figure played in the movie by Elizabeth Taylor, who wrecks havoc, and um, maybe that would begin to summon the kind of experience and dialogue I'm talking about. I was thinking of my own academic days a very unconscious kind of seduction occurs of the young student by the older professor and particularly department chairman who's going to make a man of him and uh, promises a sort of um, promises a sort of um, uh, fiat connection to the self uh, of uh, success within the chosen field. In my chosen field of psychiatry, I trained um, when I was at Stanford. Um, the training of our department had a habit. You wouldn't see him very often, uh, but he had an office that had a wonderful um, a dark blue carpet. And um, every so often, he would call you in, but not on the carpet in the usual sense. He'd um, call you in and offer you um, very deliciously prepared coffee with exquisite cups and also a cigar and sit down and um, I've heard a lot about your work. You're just excellent. You're going to be one of the leaders of American psychiatry. And very often he'd be saying this to uh, men who were two months out of their internships and um, some of those leaders of American psychiatry didn't feel that they needed, therefore, to uh, learn uh, to do basic psychotherapy. After all, why should you if you're going to? And so they, they um, spent as much time as they could over at the Stanford campus getting MAs or PhDs in anthropology, and they learned everything but to uh, treat patients psychiatrically, and they would go on to the National Institutes of Mental Health and so forth, where people frequently couldn't stand them. They were these terribly inflated people and uh, would finally get uh, shoved off onto an Indian reservation somewhere, you know, where they could maybe got the compensation if they really took the experience seriously and, 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 and learned from the shaman. But it was a, they shouldn't learn it in the psychiatry teaching program because um, uh, daddy really wasn't there when he was needed. He was, there was this sort of smoke that blew, but uh, there, there, really wasn't, uh, there really wasn't substance. And in a very unconscious sense, um, this chairman, who is like many chairmen in other departments, and not just psychiatry departments, was acting out uh, the myth of um, Daedalus and Icarus, which, as we know, um, uh, Daedalus, who was something of a trickster and had been actually exiled uh, uh, to the island of Crete and built because of previous tricksterism and, and uh, built a labyrinth in which the Minotaur was, was hidden, um, decided to flee the island of uh, Crete, I believe, after, um, after Theseus's uh, takeover. And um, 
makes wax wings for his uh, boy Icarus and says, um, "Now don't don't fly don't fly too high." Well, anyone who knows the rudiments of child psychology at all know that's exactly the way to get your son to go straight up. And uh, Icarus, up Icarus went. The wax wings melted, and Icarus fell into the sea. And in this unconscious manner, fathers who kind of lay their trip on sons are destroying the son. Uh, one uh, professor in a department of art history that I know about had three suicides in an 18-month period among uh, senior or graduate students and or, and or junior faculty members all of whom had had this experience of um, uh, being promised great things uh, by him. I remember one student who told me this story um, was a uh, man with pretty good grades, but not perhaps top grades, but this man was pushing for um, the equivalent of a Woodrow Wilson uh, fellowship, and he kept saying to this man, uh, you're going to be going to Stanford, get your application, and you better get a, a sweater with a bear on it. And he would say this over and over again to him, so, of course, when uh, he didn't get into any graduate school at all, let alone a Woodrow Wilson uh, fellowship, he was uh, sorely disappointed and felt betrayed. And then, looking into the situation, learned that this uh, particular chairman had, had been uh, inflating people and promising things right and left. And I, I call that seduce, then destroy. And um, I can see how a man can... Uh, can get into that. As I, as I get a little bit older and suddenly there are younger men who are wanting me to give them some of the mana, it's, it's extremely tempting to play the, the mana personality and to encourage them uh, and to just sort of, and also you sort of, I don't want it to take as long for them as it did for me, you see. And of course, the hidden agenda, which is that I don't want to be uh, supported now that I finally got here. Uh, <laughs> Uh, it gets kind of uh, shoved to one side, and I find myself uh, sort of impelled, as I think women who know something about the anonymous find themselves sometimes impelled to, as if by something evil, to sometimes behave seductively in a very, very destructive way. Uh, and I, of course, the seduction I'm talking about isn't, isn't sexual seduction, but the seduction of sharing power. Men really don't like to share power nearly as much as they pretend to. Uh, maybe if I, maybe if I'd said those of you who are in corporate life know what I'm talking about, uh, <laughs> there would be more laughs. Um, so, what is the anima then? That's the second question that I was asked. There are still some people who don't know, and as a matter of fact, everyone here doesn't know. If we were really honest, uh, we have a Latin name. Um, well, formally, in classical Jungian psychology, the anima is one of the archetypes of the collective unconscious. And um, I always think of um, Jung as a psychology of experience, and he's trying to get sort of holographic units of experience that kind of give us patterns. And so the anima is three things at once, as any archetype is. The anima is an affect, that is, it's an emotion or a, a, an emotional impelling force that kind of makes you want to do something. It's an emotion. It's an image, 
one actually has either uh, specifically an image of a woman in one's mind or just as feminine the image of the potential beauty of another man um, there was a, a or, or oneself as a man there's a that book by um, uh, Janet Malcolm about Aaron Green uh, the fictional uh, but or disguised psychoanalyst in New York called The Impossible Profession describes how this man Aaron Green uh, can't do um, the thing he'd like to do and appear at psychoanalytic congresses because he has such a, a difficulty speaking. And when analyzing it out, he found that behind his difficulty speaking, uh, as a good Freudian, he, he looked and found the hidden wish. It was the wish to be a beautiful woman. And uh, because he can't be a beautiful woman when he gives a talk, he, he therefore can't give the talk at all. So behind that symptom was the image of, of a woman. Um, just as in the film Now Back, Thank Heaven, and Release Vertigo, uh, Jimmy Stewart's symptom of vertigo finally involves him in the image of a, of a woman, Kim Novak, who plays this Madeline Judy woman, who is sort of the image of his symptomatic problem. In other words, his symptom is really an anima problem. So, so it can be the beauty of, of a woman or the beautiful uh, future or career of, an, of, of another man. That's, the, that's the, uh, the image aspect. And finally, an archetype is always a total situation. That's why I told you stories. Because they, the anima constructs a fateful pattern. Uh, it tells a story, and that's why uh, vertigo is not just an unpleasant symptom or just Ken Novak, but the whole mysterious entanglement that Hitchcock leads us through so, so artfully, the whole uh, illusion and then disillusionment, it's the whole situation. That's, so that, that movie preeminently uh, defines almost in an experiential way what what an archetype is all about. It's, a, it's, an, it's an emotion, it's an image, and it's a situation. And uh, that's sort of how I try to present it to you. I try to present two, two types of anima, two types of anima problem. I don't pretend that that takes, uh, takes all the mystery out of it, but it, I hope that's a little clearer. Are there some other, other questions? Comment is that the father seems to have an anima possession, but the son has to live it. Something is passed from father to son that has to be lived, and that thing that has to be lived is tragic, or it's tragic that it has to be lived, if I'm hearing you right. During the break, someone described to me a, a tragic situation in which a father had always had... Um, uh, a withheld and needy, difficult, uh, perhaps one would say saturnine, uh, sourpuss kind of anima. And the son uh, grew up seeming to be a very uh, uh, cheerful uh, peer and, and, a, and a bit of a poet and, and filled with youthful enthusiasm, yet uh, on his wedding night or shortly after uh, killed his bride and himself. And that's, of course, what Jung psychology is really speaking to. It's speaking to states of, of possession and their consequences. Um, now, the relation of possession 
in the Father to possession in the Son is what I think is behind your question. And this whole concept of possession is something that has interested me for a very long time. It, the very word smells of uh, the Middle Ages when we spoke of people as possessed. But I think it's one of those things that with a grain of salt we could usefully revive because if people uh, aren't possessed, why are we in the mess we're in, you might say. And Noah's um, statement was, again, the difference of Jungian psychology from any other psychology I know is that it never pretends to put the explanation ahead of the experience. He says, um, everyone knows that we have complexes nowadays. What is not so well known is that complexes have us. And um, that's the key here, uh, that it seems to be possible, however, for a parent to experience part of the unconscious life. As I was saying, there is a difference between entertaining something in awareness and being conscious. The man can be selectively aware of portions of his anima, and others around him can be, and there's the hideous rub, because a man thinks he knows something about his unconscious life, and all he does is, is he knows part of it that wants to stay conscious. A sort of alignment comes between the ego and some part of his anima, and, and he maintains a split between some, some other, that and some other part. That other part frequently is carried by the children. It comes out in the children in a, in a very shocking way. Now, in this case uh, that I just gave of the tragic, tragic example, it, it seemed almost as if um, uh, the son um, carried the lighthearted, truer uh, side of the father uh, in some uh, in some way, and um, rather than meet the trickster in the outer world, um, uh, the trickster came up from him in some, some terrible way. But we don't really know what happened at the wedding night. I would suspect that if he killed the wife and then himself, that there was something in the marriage contract that had the betrayal aspect of the Potiphar's wife. It did, you say. Not in the marriage, but an engagement. The woman wants to break the engagement. Um, there's a possibility of reconciliation. Uh, the man goes to the reconciliation meeting with a gun, and the tragedy ensues. Um, what this means is that we have a father who's described as somewhat paranoid and difficult. Uh, very often, people who are paranoid and difficult have in their innermost core a trustingness. Uh, a kind of pure trust. The word pure means boy. The word pure means eternal boy. As one of my patients said, which I think is so much better, endless boy. And um, uh, that pure trust is a very dangerous thing that paranoia sometimes, and it, it, it makes one unfit for life. There's no real development of a certain healthy trickster sense of the shadow of others which enables one to hold one's own against the possibility of betrayal. And as a matter of fact, that's just what we see in, in Joseph. So 
very often um, the sons of these difficult fathers carry the good and they become the trusting poor the father didn't dare be. But of course this kind of trusting poor is like a little bubble that if, if pricked it can, can just collapse and what he basically collapsed into was uh, a deeper paranoia than his father had ever known. I mean, he sounds, I don't pretend to know the experience fully, but it sounds as if he just felt so betrayed and, and didn't know what to do with it. The father, we told, projected his anima onto, onto Puellas, or adolescent women, and, and some sort of a blue angel kind of man. He was a professor, and, and he had... Well, uh, that's a very good example. Let's go on to some other questions, though. All right, sure. Right, stay with her. And said, you said that he had this and this and this and kind of anima. What on earth do you mean? You're talking funny or something, is what you're saying. Um, in this sense, um, we have to make a distinction between... Um, temporary feelings and more enduring feelings in, in psychology and psychiatry in general. And the word that is often used by psychiatrists in general for the more enduring feeling states that linger over time are, um, are moods. The relation of, of feelings to moods is sort of like the relation of weather to climate. The mood is sort of the enduring climate. And when I speak of Anima this way, I'm speaking of a certain emotional climate or mood which is more or less consistent. In other words, I'm using the Jungian language for, uh, for instance, Saul, who we know was melancholic and paranoid, would be said by a Jungian analyst to have a melancholic, paranoid Anima. He had a melancholic, paranoid mood or emotional style. And we use that word to kind of conjure up a certain world relating that would be very typical of a Saul and uh, that a David would have to have to deal with. Now, what I'm saying that I don't think has been said sufficiently elsewhere is that I'm introducing another idea right alongside that, and that is the idea of splitting. And I'm saying that the anima, the whole of the anima, is bigger than the mood we see, rather in the manner of those um, uh, little weather houses that I used to see as a child, where first the, the, the good mother would come out and then the witch would come out. Well, think of that not so much as, as in classical Jungian analysis as the, the dual mother motif, but think of it for a minute as the two faces of a man's anima. And let's say that one only sees the witch for the longest time. Nevertheless, you can be sure that somewhere in the psychological house is that good mother. And that's what I mean by splitting. It's split off and withheld. And the most interesting way about split off things or withheld things is they get projected onto other people. So that we really have three concepts, um, splitting, projection, and possession. And someone else can get possessed by what you split off. And that's why, one reason why uh, we go into analysis, it's to detoxify ourselves vis-a-vis others.
but why is it first of all that we've heard plenty about mother protecting son too much and often it's father who says to his to his wife you're protecting him too much it's time the boy goes into the world and um, yet the mother feels for her part maybe I am protecting him too much but maybe the father is more ambivalent in his reasons for pushing the son than we know is he pushing him over a cliff and or, or is it really as he says and how can we know the difference how do we how do we know how do we find um, um, this kind of thing out um, well I think I don't think I know in any kind of generalized collective sense each individual situation uh, is extremely hard to get to the bottom of and if I I love uh, a book by Ronald Lang called The Politics of the Family. Not nearly as well known as his more famous The Politics of Experience, but it's a series of lectures that he gave over Canadian broadcasting in which he talks about how extremely difficult it ever is to get to the real dynamics of any family. And, and the great skill families go to to conceal the actual dynamics so that all families have certain myths about how things go, but it takes real work by some of the uh, best minds working constantly with families to see beneath the surface. Uh, I've been saying that one of the collective generalized myths is that mother's to blame for everything and that um, if only father would have more power uh, in the families, all would go well. And you're sort of resonating to that with your comments. Um, I'll cite a research study that was done of uh, 100 schizophrenic young men in treatment uh, in family therapy, in which they found again and again that sure enough, there was a crushing, possessive, overbearing, so-called schizophrenogenic mother who was indeed uh, binding in all kinds of ways that were not good for the offspring. And the work of therapy seemed to be proceeding apace as uh, the mother was made to see the folly of her ways and the, and the son was urged toward emancipation. And um, up until then, the father had been a very cooperative member of the, of the therapy. As the son started to escape, one found all kinds of behaviors by which the father would push the son back into the mother. And it turned out that the real pivot, the real the really thing that really kept the psychotic situation working uh, and kept growth from occurring was not the obvious pathology of the mother, but the insidious pathology of the father who wasn't going to let anyone escape. Some of the reasons for that were speculated on by the authors. Did the father not want to be alone with that mother? Um, my own reason uh, is somewhat different. I, I see these so-called mother problems frequently as one-two punches in which what we have up to now called the negative mother is actually a collusion between a mother and a father. And just in case uh, you think you can get away from the mother in that setup, the father in it makes sure you don't. And that means that... Um, Therapists, clinically, should be very cautious against promoting identifications with the father as a way of helping someone escape from uh, uh, an oppressive mother. Um, 
very often that father turns out to be far, far uh, more toxic and more enforcing of the negative mother situation than the more obvious uh, original negative mother. And I, I think one really has to see them as a unit. But if one is going to escape, one's going to have to be very, very uh, clever. Can I put all that we've been discussing in the, in the context of a family business which has typically been founded by a father in a few words? Yes, Francis Ford Coppola is the godfather one and two. <laughs> This podcast is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it all you like as long as you maintain the attribution to the speaker, but please do not change it or sell it. If you like this episode, tell your friends about us or leave us a review on iTunes. For more information about classes, training programs, videos, audio, this podcast, or to find a Jungian analyst near you, visit our website, www.jungchicago.org.